Welcome to Finding Common Ground, a show on Naperville Community Television focused on important current events and how they impact our diverse population. I'm Rebecca Malachi-Meslin. We are many voices of one community, often with strong opinions on every side of an issue. Here, through courageous conversation in the interest of discovering collaborative solutions, we hope to find our common ground. And I'm Dana Davenport. In this episode, we are celebrating 100 years since the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote was ratified on August 18, 1920. We will discuss how after seven decades of agitation and protest, the right to vote was granted to women. Joining us for this first segment are Jean Schultz Angel from Naper Settlement and Becky Simon from League of Women Voters. How are you ladies doing today? Wonderful, thanks for having Thank us. You. It is an exciting day, but let's first start off and talk about how 100 years, the anniversary of women's suffrage, what does that mean to you? Well, for me, I, I look at it as a historian, and there's something really amazing about this movement. I always call it a long and winding road through time because there were a lot of dips, turns, and, and uh, right angles to it. It did not um, go in a straight line. And so for as a historian, it's fascinating to see over seven decades how it came to be. Um, personally, though, I think about it as something very close to us. It was only my grandmother who was born before she had the right to vote. Right. And my great-grandmother didn't. And so these, this is very close to us. This is not that far away in history when, when you look at the grand scheme of things. So I really think that for me, it's something very personal. For League of Women Voters, I think we'd have to say that we're just getting started. Yes. It might be 100 years, but if we are going to properly honor the legacy of the ladies who fought for us to have the right to vote, then we have to continue the fight. We have to continue to, to fight for the right to full access to the ballot in all 50 states. So talking about Naperville in particular, uh, and from the settlement's perspective, what, what connections are there to the suffrage movement right here in Naperville? Um, well, uh, there's actually several. And actually, I'm going to let Becky go into that because the League of Women Voters have, has done some research that's become fascinating to us. It's been very interesting. We worked closely with North Central College and their archives, and we found out that the first suffragist club in Naperville was founded in 1888. Wow. 1888, there were five Naperville residents who founded a suffrage club. Then in 1910, an automobile tour came through town. Women hopped out of their car, probably pulled out a megaphone, and made speeches in support of women's suffrage. After that, the last record we found was 1914, where some college students at what was then, I believe, North Central, Northwestern College, Northwestern back college. then, yep. they had a women's suffrage club and they entered a float in the booster parade for women's suffrage. It was not well received by everyone. Mm. And of course, right before the Naperville Equal Suffrage Club was developed, um, there was a, a visit on the campus of the college from Helen Gauger, who was the president of the Indiana Equal Suffrage Association. So the president of the state of Indiana's suffrage association came to North Central, did her speech, and then a week later, they formed that club. 
And, and the, the automobile tour that came to Naperville stopped in Naperville, stopped in many places in 1910. And these were amazing, courageous women. Courageous women are the ones who make real change and statements in history. As we know, the history is often incomplete. Can you tell us something that we don't know or, or little known facts or some of your favorite facts about the history of women's suffrage and the movement? Absolutely. Um, there's, it didn't exist in a vacuum. The suffrage movement is part of a larger series of reform movements that are going on in the United States. And suffrage runs right alongside the temperance movement, and prohibition is the effect of that. Um, suffrage movement also uh, was predicated by the anti-slavery movement. And so a lot of women, especially, and men, who were part of the anti-slavery movement went right into suffrage, although they did argue over suffrage. And in fact, in 1840, the anti-slavery movement was split nationally over do we let women speak publicly or not. And so suffrage did split the movement. So there's lots of things where you, you want to look at suffrage, you want to think it's one thing going along, but it's actually part of a lot of different reform movements. Yes. Um, the peace movement, the settlement movement, um, anti-slavery, uh, prison reform, you can name all of these things. And temperance especially was one that really helped suffrage along. The temperance movement was, was really, really popular in the United States, um, had, having hundreds of thousands more supporters than suffrage. Um, and when they gathered their forces together, specifically with Francis Willard up in Evanston, yeah. they really helped move the, the ball down the field, so to speak. Yeah. So one of the things that we want to talk about, too, is the fact that when we say women, what do we really mean? Because I think there were certain groups, as you're talking about different movements going on, who was excluded from this movement? Or Working women. <laughs> Working women uh, was quite a fight to get factory women to be able to have a position in some of these organizations. Jewish women, women of color. Indigenous women, they still didn't get the right to vote in 1920. They had to wait. And many of those working women ended up being women of color, um, minority women who couldn't afford to, to be at home or to not work. And so in many, in many ways, they were disproportionately impacted um, you know, by the movement and, and by the struggle. How, uh, how were black women involved in the movement and what rights did they not have, uh, both within the organizations as well as when the 19th Amendment was passed? Well, um, the movement itself was fractured by, uh, right after the Civil War, um, by the 15th Amendment that guaranteed um, voting rights for men of color. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony split with the movement over the 15th Amendment because they didn't support one group getting voting rights before white women, primarily. And the uh, women of color were always treated at the, at the bottom of the ladder for rights. Yep. And they were not actually granted, except for um, certain situations, they weren't allowed access to the national suffrage movements, That's in true. which they had to create their own black women clubs and suffrage movements and suffrage organizations. One of the most famous one was formed by Ida B. Wells Barnett, and that's the Alpha Suffrage Club out of Chicago that forms in 1913. And you can see an evidence of this um, in the 1913 national um, procession 
in um, Washington, D.C. Uh, I can set the scene for you. Woodrow Wilson is being inaugurated, and they're doing a national women's suffrage procession because Alice Paul is at the end of her rope, and she's poking the bear and saying, you grant women voting rights. Well, in 1913, she also didn't support black women marching with their states. Mm. And they had asked Ida B. Wells and her Alpha Suffrage Club not to march with the Illinois delegation. And that is just one example of where they were um, excluded and uh, left out. Ida B. Wells um, didn't listen, and she marched with the Illinois delegation anyway. Uh, And um, And she'll be getting a marker now. She is getting a marker. She will be getting a historic marker, I believe, at the end of the summer for Ida B. Wells and the Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago. They'll be getting their own historic marker. Well, and I think that's so important, especially now. I mean, we're talking a lot lately about uh, things like monuments and statues and and things like that, and how they don't tell a complete history, right? right. They're they're telling a very specific, um, one-sided view of things. And this is why I think talking about this hundred-year anniversary is so important because we do need to bring up pieces of this history that. Um, we're not as proud of, right? It, to tell that complete picture so that we can learn from those mistakes, learn from who is included and who is not included in these movements, so that as we move forward, we can make better choices um, and make sure that that inclusivity is really, truly there. Rebecca, I think that's so true, uh, particularly now that race is on the forefront. Um, 100 years of women's suffrage, coincidentally, is in the same year as Black Lives Mattering on a national, global scale. Uh, What lessons can we learn from this as we now have a a new woman of color um, nominated for the vice presidential seat for the Democratic National Party? What can we learn? What what has women's suffrage taught us um, in terms of coming together and women supporting women? Full access to the ballot in all 50 states. We need to fully restore the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We need to grant nationwide access to vote by mail and automatic voter registration. Wow. Your vote is your voice. When you get into the suffrage history, what you really come to terms with is resiliency and perseverance. And the people that dedicated their lives to being able to have their civic duty, you know, being able to exercise their, their civil rights as American citizens. Um, and this was, a, this was dangerous. This was something that could ruin your career. It could ruin your family. It could, it could really um, be a big problem for you to be courageous. Um, and I think we need to remind ourselves that those courageous people of the past are our heroes and heroines today. And I think it's really important to think about it through that lens as well. Um, Breaking barriers and um, going beyond um, the status quo to make progress for America and for the citizens of America um, is something that always is going to be discussed, like monuments. You know, monuments, you wouldn't necessarily learn your history from a monument, you might learn a tidbit, but you definitely see what is valued by a community in what the Mm -hmm. monuments are that are up, so. We see that um, 
how women are treating one another in this space. We were talking about how um, we are looking to um, women as voters, also as politicians and people who are running for office. Um, how does the way that women treat each other in these spaces really impact um, our collective voting power um, and having our voices heard? Well, it's been an interesting um, thing to look at historically that, you know, when one of the arguments against suffrage, which there were several, um, was this notion that women don't have the capacity for political thought, or they shouldn't be involved, or they can't give their life on the field of battle, so they shouldn't be able to vote to go into a war. So they had all of these arguments saying why women shouldn't vote, thinking that women were going to be a single mindset when they did get the right to vote and have one single thought, like because women would want one thing, they thought all women would want that thing. And what we know as us four women sitting around today, we are four different brains and have four different um, sen uh, sets of ideas, sets of frame of references, sets of life experiences that are going to frame our perspective on how we should vote. Um, so, so I think it's really, really interesting historically to look at what they were afraid of and how it didn't come to fruition because women are individuals. Talk about the women women as a voting block. We, we, we kind of dabbled into that as well um, in terms of what people are afraid of, right? And, and what they think about women as a whole. Um, what were some of the misconceptions about women as a voting block and, and how does that differ with women as a voting block now? Uh, people thought that women would just vote the way their husband or their father told them to. That part. And I can't recall ever having done that. <laughs> <laughs> My dad gave me advice on several elections, whether or not I. They gave advice. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's there right. was a lot of misconception that women just simply couldn't handle the deep ideas, the profound, complex ideas of governing and voting. And I, that's just. And not there true. were there were um, misconceptions by women that had about women. You know, they didn't want the ballot thrust upon them, and they didn't want the responsibility of the vote because they took that responsibility really, really seriously, which is why the League of Women Voters was established to begin with. And we're still seeing that today with resistance to the Equal Rights Amendment. We still do not have a constitutional guarantee of equality for women in this country. And there are still people who are convinced that women just can't handle it. And that's an amazing fact that I think a lot of women don't even know that that has, was never ratified, that the ERA does not exist and that there's still a huge group of women and men who are fighting for this, um, but we don't have that constitutional amendment. To yes, that's important to note. I have talked with legislators, male and female, who were opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment. And what is the major opposition behind it? It used to be military. Mm -hmm. I think a generation the ago, they were very afraid of women having to go into battle. We've put that behind us. Mm -hmm. So, and, and but it is time. It is time for the Equal Rights Amendment. And I, I really appreciated you talking about um, the divisiveness within the movement um, and that it was still, it still came to fruition after many, many years. 72. Um, 72. And I think, do you think that there's been a, a, a significant backslide in the way that women approach voting now? So 
maybe from the perspective of the League of Women Voters, um, what are those barriers that maybe you encounter when you're trying to uh, encourage women to register to vote or to get out and vote? I would say that the barriers typically are the same for men and for women. Okay. And up until this year, I'd say the largest barrier was apathy. Mm. That's no longer there. Mm -hmm. Now we have, for this particular election cycle, people are fearful of voting in person. They don't yet have the confidence that they should in vote by mail. Vote by mail is safe, it is secure, it is a good way to vote and keep yourself socially distanced. So. What do you hope for the next 100 years with respect to women's suffrage? Women's suffrage has been responsible for so many advances, I think, for women. Um, just the empowerment of women in and of itself. So what is your, some of your hopes and goals with respect to the next 100 years? for women and, and voting rights. 100% participation <laughs> yes, from the electorate dream, is dream. what I would dream for. But universal suffrage, we need to go, you yeah. know, not only gender barriers, mm -hmm. but other barriers. We yeah. absolutely need universal access to the ballot and, and to elections. Um, so in the next 100 years, I, I would hope that, um, and I would look to and work for universal voting access. Universal voting access across all 50 states, vote by mail across all 50 states, full restoration of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the ERA in the U.S. Constitution. It's time. Wonderful. It's time. It's time. And time it is. We'll be right back with 100 years of women's suffrage on Finding Common Ground. Don't go anywhere. Talk shows are like the family and friends you turn to in good times and bad. That familiar face of your favorite host welcoming you to a new episode somehow just makes the day brighter. Welcome to the Moms Network. NCTV 17 produces a wide variety of TV talk shows, all encouraging you to join the conversation and feel connected to your community. If you value that connection, please make a donation. Welcome back to Finding Common Ground. Joining us in this segment are Reba Osborne from the Naperville Area Chamber of Commerce and Judy Broadhead, who is one of our Naperville City Councilwomen. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Thanks. We're great. Excited Good. to be here. Thank well, you. we're really excited to be talking about 100 years of women's suffrage. And we just wanted to ask you, um, what does that mean to you, 100 years of women's voting rights? Well, it, it means a lot to me. I've been involved in uh, politics and working on campaigns for more than 30 years in Naperville. So if you subtract that from 100 years, it was only 70 years <laughs> when, uh, when I started getting involved helping other people. And I helped some of the uh, 1980s councilwomen in their campaigns, including uh, Carolyn Lesage and, and Carol Piper, and I kind of sought them out. And I've been involved in events in, uh, in Naperville um, 
having to do with government since 1990 and on the council for almost the past uh, 12 years. So it means a lot to me. My own mother was born in 1918 before women could vote. I had a grandfather in the New Jersey legislature um, so early that it was before women could vote. So my own grandmother couldn't vote for her husband. So, um, you know, even within my lifetime, um, I've seen so much change and it it, um, it, it really is uh, connected to people who are still alive now. Mm -hmm. Like Judy, I have seen so many changes in the opportunity for women just in my lifetime, in my, just in my career. I remember when I, um, early in my career, when I was pregnant with my son 28 years ago, uh, a coworker of mine said, you know, you're so lucky to be in this era because when I got pregnant, my career was over. I mean, so I see so many changes in the opportunity for women. When I try to explain that to my daughter, she looks at me like I have three heads because it, things have changed so much. But I think it's, it is, for lack of a better word, dumbfounding that it hasn't been that long ago. To your point, my it happened during my grandmother's lifetime. So it's not, um, to think it took this long of women being um, protesting and imprisoned in unsanitary conditions, just to, just to weigh in on who our leaders are. I mean, that, that's to me mm -hmm. dumbfounding. Yeah. 70 years um, of the protesting to, to get the right to vote for women. Um, but what a remarkable time that we're in right now, where there, it's been recently announced that the vice presidential candidate is Kamala Harris. Um, she is a lawyer. She is a HBCU graduate from Howard University. And it's just so exciting that after 100 years um, of the right to vote for women, we now have a, a woman of color uh, on the ticket what, what does that mean to you? Um, how does that resonate with you? How do you feel about that news? Well, you know, I was in college in 1972 and I met Shirley Chisholm, yes. who was um, uh, one of the first women who, um, actually I think is the first woman who was in a Democratic mm -hmm. primary and yes. she won the New Jersey primary and I went to school in New Jersey. So of course to me that doesn't seem so long ago, but it's it's a name that is historical mm -hmm. now. So to have, uh, to, to think that in the early 70s, we thought that that wouldn't take all that long. Right. And, and yet here we are mm -hmm. um, so many years later. So it, uh, connected to what you were just saying. Some things um, have changed so much, yet we still see some things are not all that different. And um, women have run into a lot of stumbling blocks mm -hmm. in trying to run for office yes. or even trying to get um, nominated for office. But what is that direct impact on women running for office? Because, you know, as you can imagine, it wasn't as if we gained the right to vote and then there was this sudden influx <laughs> of women candidates, clearly. Right. Um, but we're still fighting that uphill battle. What, what, what progress um, are we, you know, what, what are we missing in this that we still haven't seen as many women run for office um, in this time? You know, that's a great question. There's a, there's a certain amount of research on it, but... Um, 
not that much has been studied when it comes to local elections. We all are really familiar with women being on school boards, for instance, and there's a long tradition of that. But even when it comes down to local offices, like uh, a city council, uh, we still find that men um, outnumber women by far all over the country. And it's really an anomaly when you have a city that might even have more women than men in it, um, and lots of professional women, uh, as Naperville has, yet um, it hasn't necessarily caught up. So for instance, when I was elected in 2009, I was the only woman on that city council for six years. There was not another woman on there until 2015. Wow. Um, Whereas we had had more women on the city council and a woman mayor back in the 1980s. So Naperville actually saw a little bit of a regression if you want to talk about um, you know, numbers of women. Um, I, I don't have the academic answer to that. Um, I have some anecdotal ideas, but. <laughs> I think often gen totally generalizing women tend not to be confident in their abilities to, uh, they have to feel like they have to know everything in order to step out and, and, and have a voice. I know, I, I wish I could remember the specifics, but I read somewhere where for men, they read the job description, and if they think they have 20, like 20% 20 of the skill sets, I'm very low, they go for the job. They jump women, in. Yeah. <laughs> women have to feel like, you know, very, very confident and, and almost overqualified. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly, they can be overqualified, right. but they would not be confident to go for a job. I think that's, that's part of it. And then in uh, very often, you know, so many women when they have, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about this later in the, in the conversation, but they, you know, you're on the chopping block. You're, yeah. you're in a fishbowl, you're going to be attacked for so many different things and really it's just having the confidence to stand there and say bring it it's like <laughs> really uh, it's very very difficult I think for women to uh, more women to get involved because of those reasons that's uh, the imposter syndrome of, of not feeling like you belong not feeling like you have a seat at the table feeling like you don't deserve to be there and sometimes other women can perpetuate mm -hmm. that same insecurity, um, that same stereotype of, of feeling like you don't really have a seat at the table already with Kamala um, being nominated. I've already heard about um, questioning whether she is able to uh, fulfill her duties because she's a mother mm -hmm. um, and having children where every president, every vice president, for the most part, as far as I know, have, has had children. That's never come up. Um, and we've talked about this before with um, other candidates, um, how they dress, how they look, right? No one's like, look at Mike Pence's shoes, you know? <laughs> I can't believe, look at his tie, right? Those things just don't come up. that red tie. That red tie. <laughs> I know. They just don't come up when it comes to men. And yeah. so, so why, do, why do we do that as women to other women? Um, women supporting women is a big tenant for us, uh, for this show, for finding common ground. That's a way that we can, can, can figure out how to support each other, even if we have political differences. Right, find even that common humanity. Correct. Mm -hmm. I think that's, because there may be a, uh, someone running for office who's a woman who, you know, you might not agree with their political beliefs, but I think that we fall into this trap of um, tearing them down. Yes. 
um, for things that aren't related to yep. their qualifications, that aren't related to um, how th- what their values are or what they're what they're actually going to vote on, what bills they're going to bring up in in Congress or in Senate. So um, how do we, uh, you know, it, I think making that distinction is really important. So how can women support women without feeling like they're compromising their own beliefs, right? Because um, that, I think that's where it gets tricky, right? Yeah, um, we haven't had it for the past maybe year or two, but back in, uh, let's see, maybe about uh, 10 years ago, Mary Lou Kalashaw, who was a uh, local Republican uh, state rep for many years, who didn't do that, I think, till she was 50, and then I believe she was in office until she was 70. Um, and she was old, she was retired and very ill, and she asked me and my husband actually to help start a, a women's dinner for all the elected women for the the townships and um, the the DuPage County, some of Will County City Council, and uh, and we did we had we had several of those, and we kind of passed around the responsibility of, of organizing it because it was a lot of work, and that was just one way where we would come and and come together and um, you know have a, have a pleasant dinner, hang out talk about what it was like to be perhaps a woman candidate or office holder, but not talk about uh, issues at all. Tell us what it's like to be a woman candidate and, and to hold office and to um, to be in that position. And what advice do you have um, for how the movement of women supporting women can, can show up in the polls? You know, I think uh, in a local election, it can be an advantage, it can be a disadvantage. Right. Um, sometimes you need to stick out from the crowd. So let me just think about uh, the election where Sean Caston was elected. He, in his primary, it was all um, women he was running against and women uh, sort of a, of a certain age. Lauren Underwood ran against all men. So I think in both of those cases, to be someone who was a little bit different, different. and was mm-hmm. easy to pick out, like, oh, how do I distinguish among all these people in a right. big field that can, you know, to be the, the different one can be, I think can be, uh, can be helpful. What is it like to be a, a woman candidate? Well, to, or to be in office, I will say when I first got elected, the guys didn't tell me anything like, you know, when, did, what time do I show up for this? Uh, what am I supposed to wear? Well, I'm not going to wear anything <laughs> you're wearing. Um, and so I felt a little clueless. I would have to go to women who were on the staff and say, am I expected to go to this? Am I expected to go to that? Do I have to do this? What? You know, so there's they, no there's no mentoring. No, there was. Uh, were well, they helpful? A little bit, a little bit of uh, you know political mentoring, but but not the sort of practical day to day things um, that that you need to know. And I think, of course, men are going to share with one another because they have the same um, same needs and experiences. Um, I was a little bit older when I started. I would advise women to start younger, especially now. Don't don't hold back. Don't worry that your kids are young. Um, men who run do not worry about it. I'm a college professor. I have been one for 30 years. I've had 18-year-old freshmen, literally, my advisee, say, I think I'm going to run for city council. You're 18. 18. You're a freshman in college. But no, I've never had a woman of 18 say, I think think I'm qualified to run for for office. But that, yeah, I have to hand it to men for that. That takes that kind of chutzpah, that kind of confidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to give women more of that. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think with um, the vice presidential candidate, um, recall how we treated Hillary when she ran for office? Do you recall that? Can you share kind of what what that was like for Hillary Clinton as a, as a presidential candidate? I, I think something that's been challenging for a lot of um, female politicians, or I have this infatuate, infatuation with um, first ladies and reading about them and their stories because they have a very unique yes. platform. They're tethered to their husband's mm-hmm. <laughs> platform, but then they have a unique place to, you know, to be, to, to, to uh, advocate. And I'm just very fascinated over the years to watch different, um, how different first ladies use that power to, um, to move their, their platform forward. But I think one of the challenges and so many of them is they're the infidelities of their husbands mm-hmm. and having to deal with that. Like as far as um, how you proceed with um, your campaigns. I, I, know I was reading this fascinating book on uh, Lady Bird Johnson mm-hmm. and she would have to, when, when all the whispers, you know, the, the socialites in, in Washington about where her husband slept the night before, she had to show up and be present and then and and be who she needed to be. So I think that those are that, that's a challenge I think oftentimes is just um, it, those kind of things when you're judged unfortunately by the behaviors of your spouse. And um, I'm fascinated by first ladies too and I, I feel sorry for all of them because I don't <laughs> there's no way to do that job and make mm-hmm. everybody uh, make everybody happy. So I have some sympathy for uh, almost any any one of them. Um, and the idea of the husband's fidelity that goes back to the very earliest uh, presidents well, right It goes yeah. back. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they, this is a, a problem. It seems to be um, <laughs> power. Yeah, but um, women would not get forgiven for that. Absolutely, that's, in that's the same point. way. So there's, I mean, I think all women understand there's that that very much still a, a double standard. Um, there's a saying that you know women only get one chance. You know, if you um, were, you could be a bad boy in high school, maybe even in college, maybe even. Um, get yourself in some trouble as a, a young working guy. Um, women politically do not um, point. Uh, recover from that. And I think the stakes are even higher for women of color. Absolutely. I'm sure they are uh, right. higher for, for women of color. And um, uh, so, but, but, you know, we all know women who, who have been very careful about their behavior yeah. for their lifetimes yeah. so that that would not come back to bite them in, in any way. And you can only yeah. control your own behavior, right? And but it's, it, yeah, it's difficult. I just think it's a good time to check some of those biases. Right now, race is on the forefront. Um, politics is on the forefront. And sometimes people insert some of those stop gaps, some of those blockades, some of those barriers to just insert um, those things to be a stop gap without really thinking about or, or really rationalizing or, or understanding how irrational it is to put that double standard in play. So it's a good, it's, a, it's gonna be a very ripe time, I would say, to check some of those biases. Why would you say that? You know, would you say that about a male candidate? Would you say that about um, a candidate um, who is not of color, et cetera, et cetera? So the discussions, I think, will be very interesting. And just, just to me, it's remarkable that it's 100 years of women's suffrage. What, you know, what are your hopes for those next, the next hundred years? Where, where do you want to see women's rights, women's voting rights, women politicians in the next hundred years? What would your goals be? 
Well, you know, <laughs> women have worked behind the scenes in politics from the very beginning. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I was a president of the Naperville chapter of the League of Women Voters uh, uh, before I ran for city council. Uh, my mother was president in our hometown in uh, New Jersey uh, when I was an adult as well. Um, and the, the league was begun to, in 1920, when women got the vote, to educate women. Like, if we're going to vote, we're going to make sure we're educated. Um, I often, um, you know, so, so women, as always, think they have to be, well, maybe I should go to law school before I run for, you know, school board. Yeah. Um, and and uh, whereas the men often um, have not necessarily even finished college and, and don't see that as a detriment to their being a, a candidate for a local office. And it, and it shouldn't be. Um, so I guess I would like them to be raised with the confidence that the political arena is an appropriate place for them to put their brains and energy yes. to work. Mm. And, um, and why not? You've been doing this work. An awful lot of political campaigning is, is grunt work. It's still postcards and stuffing envelopes mm -hmm. and walking door to door and making phone calls. And it's been that way for um, you know, as, as long as, as phones have existed. So, um, and, and why not be the person who is the candidate and not just the person who is helping a candidate? And I think I would like to see the, there's such a double standard. And this was a joke back in the 80s when I started my career. Like you see, you see a, a male leader and there, we, we, you alluded to this before, it's like he's got a photograph of his family. It's like, ah, oh, solid family man. And then the female, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, she's going to be distracted. She's going to be, you know, that, that kind of thing. Or in, in this, to me, in the, in the political arena, this is very important. It's like if a, if a man, uh, loses his temper and is, not loses his temper, is, um, very um, outspoken and gets angry. That's like, oh, he's got fire, he's got passion. But then a woman can do that, and it's all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, she's just this out of control, you know, hysterical, whatever. And I think those kind of uh, the way we perceive that difference, I think, has to be dissolved because I think with, especially with um, Kamala Harris, she's been more on the. Um, I don't say abrasive side, but she's been known with uh, like her, his, her criticism of Biden. So she's she's got bite to her. And I just wonder how she's going to be able to um, that might be something that might be challenging her. But moving forward, you could have bite and be and be strong in a you know, and be effective and not have all the guns pointed to your head that you are so afraid to run for office because you're so afraid of the the black the backlash absolutely i mean it just goes to the incident with um aoc alexandria alexandria or casio cortez who um was called a name mm -hmm. she was called a b and effing b um because she's just outspoken because mm -hmm. she stands up because she is so powerful and because she's so, such a force. Um, I love the way she stood up for herself. Mm -hmm. I love the way that she trashed um, Ted Yolo's half-hearted apology um, that, that in some ways could come across arguably as insincere. Uh, we have to stand up to those things and, and say no, because that's some of the bias. Um, and I think we as women 
owe it to each other to support each other, um, to stand up for each other in those moments. And I hope that women, um, like the women we have in Congress, like women who are running for vice president, uh, like women who are in this political arena, running for Congress, running for Senate, who are outspoken, inspire other women mm -hmm. to get involved in politics on a local level, um, to stand up, to be a voice, not to just stuff envelopes or make phone calls, which are very important jobs, <laughs> but to also be the change that they want to see. So I hope, particularly in 100 years of women's suffrage. So we want to talk about the election coming up. We want to talk about the next steps and what the future looks like for the next 100 years. And we will do so when we come back with more Finding Common Ground. Don't go anywhere. Stay informed with NCTV 17 News Update. These free videos sent straight to your email summarize the latest information and show you what's happening around town. Visit nctv17.com slash subscribe to sign up now. Welcome back to Finding Common Ground, where we are celebrating 100 years of women's suffrage. We are joined in this segment by Shoshana Frank, an election judge and public policy chair for the local AAUW, and Logan White, a media strategist. Ladies, how are you doing today? Great. Thank Hello. you so much for joining us. A lot of people don't understand how elections work on a local level. Uh, in Naperville in DuPage County, can you tell us, Shoshana, who's in charge of elections? So interestingly enough, the uh, people in charge of the elections recently changed due to a referendum on a ballot uh, for DuPage County. So it is now the county clerk, and the current county clerk uh, is Jean Kaczmarek, um, and the whole office uh, absorbed the election commission. Um, there's been some changes as a result of that, but overall the entire election still runs pretty much the same. So absentee ballots have been available for a long time. And so with the upcoming election, there's a lot of talk of mail-in ballots. There's a lot of talk of uh, absentee ballots and early voting, things like that. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between absentee ballots and mail-in ballots. Sure, so they're actually really the same thing. Um, it's just two different ways of referring to a ballot that is sent to your home versus going and voting in person. Um, if you're voting in person, whether it's early voting or day of the election voting, it's a slightly different process that you go through, but the same things are on your ballot. If you're getting a mail-in ballot or absentee ballot, it is mailed to your house and I want to emphasize this part. You have to follow very specific instructions to complete your absentee ballot correctly. Unfortunately, a lot of absentee ballots are voided because they are filled out incorrectly. That's why it's super important that you read the instructions. And then you'll just send it back through the regular US Postal Service, whether it's your mailbox or um, going through a drop box that they have. Logan, this is your second time voting in a presidential election. Yes, it and, is. And um, the vice presidential candidate was recently announced, um, and she went to your alma mater. Yes. Howard <laughs> University. Um, HU. So, HU <laughs> and HBCU. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what voting is like and how important it is for, for people your age and your age mm -hmm. group and your age bracket? I think for young people in particular, I think there's a misconception that we're not very well versed on issues and, and the policies and the legislation. And 
Honestly, I think that's a huge misconception because you see more and more now on the internet, a lot of young people that are speaking their mind about issues and problems that they're having and actually challenging their parents on those issues, which you don't typically see. Um, you more so see people following their family unit. So I don't really know if issues is really the problem, but more so ensuring that we are supporting candidates that will help the greater good of our country. Um, you know, the way the, the world is now and the way our country is, we're in a two-party system. We have Republicans and we have Democrats, whether we like it or not. So we might have to vote for candidates that we don't necessarily agree on every single policy or issue that they might have laid out. But at the end of the day, we do need to, to compromise because by writing in candidates or by voting for third-party candidates, that's not really going to, to help us. Mm -hmm. And we're not really going to see um, you know, the person that's going to align mostly with our agenda, um, you know, be in office. So I think that's definitely something important is just um, making sure we're compromising and speaking with local officials as well. We can actually um, talk to them one on one. I know Lauren Underwood, for instance, has a lot of town halls. Um, so sitting down with them, getting on their calendars and speaking about those issues that we might not agree with um, and you know, not being afraid to explain why we don't agree with them, because I think we can really make more change doing that than, um, than we might think. I think the voter is, is, is younger and more active and more yeah. engaged and more involved. We've seen that with everything that's happened in, in, in respect of social justice in 2020. Mm -hmm. And I think, do you feel like younger people, younger voters are, are feeling more empowered to vote this year, um, who are engaged in the process. A lot of times people feel disenfranchised or, mm -hmm. or marginalized or that their vote doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's going to be a resurgence of people interested in voting and rec recognizing the importance of voting and therefore registering to be voters? I definitely think so, for sure. I think after seeing um, the 2016 election, there was, um, you know, I, I noticed a lot of people my age that weren't extremely happy with the outcome and more so because they, they didn't go out and vote and wish that they, they did go out and vote and um, understood that their voices were heard more so than, than they thought so. So I think we'll definitely see a lot of people voting. And I think with just the current um, landscape right now with COVID-19 and, um, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, we see a lot of important issues that are taking place. And I think you see younger people, and I think climate change is another thing um, to mention as well. Those are some really big passion points in younger generations. And so I, I definitely foresee us coming, coming with um, a heavy pen this election. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've also seen um, a lot more people engaged about voting mm -hmm. than ever before. Um, just today when I was getting news alerts, people were talking about mail-in ballots and the U.S. Postal Service and what's going mm -hmm. on with voting. And so I do think the fact that just the mechanics of voting are in the news all of the time will get more people interested mm -hmm. and more people involved because it's top of mind. And so often we only do what is top of mind because there is so much going on. We're inundated with information. And I've also seen a lot of younger voters who are really 
engaged in activism and much as what Logan already mentioned, um, but also there's Girl Scout badges that's all about voting. Mm -hmm. And um, they're getting speakers to come in and talk about what that means to vote, what it means to be an activist. Because it's not necessarily just going to protests. It's also showing up on November 3rd and voting. Mm-hmm. So we're celebrating this 100-year anniversary. It's, it's, it, I can only imagine what that felt like in that moment to have suddenly not have the ability to vote and now have the ability to vote. But 100 years later, there's, you know, when we see the voter turnout, clearly a lot of women aren't turning out for elections. Mm-hmm. And part of that, uh, as we mentioned in our previous segment, might be apathy. But um, part of that, too, might be barriers. What kind of barriers um, do you see people? Uh, I would say there's, there's barriers, and then there's also people probably making some excuses that their votes encounter, things like that. But what do you hear um, from people about why they might not go out and vote? I think there's a lot of fear. Um, I was talking to a colleague of mine today who was afraid that his mail-in ballot would not be counted, and this was a man who was worried about this. So I can see how women being even more afraid of that they're, if they go through all the work and they do a mail-in ballot and they send it in, they follow all the steps, that it still won't be counted and it still won't matter. Um, And also, there's a lot of stigma if you are a woman and are voting differently than your partner is Mm -hmm. or differently than the rest of your family is. Um, And even though we vote secret ballots in Mm -hmm. the United States, which is very important to the voting process, um, people still talk about it all the time, even when they're at polling places. And election judges have to remind them, you can't talk about what you're voting in a polling place, and people still do it. So I do think there's that aspect as well um, that's a lot of internalized that women have to overcome. Two things. One, where can people turn to if they need assistance with the voting process? You talked about following the instructions and votes not being counted. So where can people go to get assistance in the voting process? And secondly, where can people volunteer? if they want to get involved, if they want to be a part of the change, if they want to help reassure others that their vote counts? To volunteer, the two big ways to do that is definitely to be an election judge. Um, It is technically a volunteer position, although we are paid by DuPage County. Not a whole lot, but we're it's okay. <laughs> um, and so being an election judge is a crucial part of having a fair election. And not just the day of, but there's a ton of stuff that the election commission does prior to the election, including preparing all those mail-in ballots and then reading all those mail-in ballots. Um, and that's a great place that you can do to help that process. So you need more volunteers. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> and this right. is like for it's always an issue in every single county no there's never enough election judges okay um and then for educating voters i think the league of women voters do an amazing job with getting people registered they go to high schools to register students when they turn 18 they go to colleges um but they also publish um on their websites candidate information for everyone to kind of get as much as you can and nonpartisan view of candidates, including at the local elections, which are so often overlooked. So what work do you think we as women need to do to better support each other, particularly when it comes to politics or just even in life? I think that 
a lot of it comes down to checking our own biases. Um, oftentimes, you know, you'll see male elected officials and candidates, and they might speak in a way that's more direct, for example, and that's portrayed as being ambitious or, or confident, right? But when a woman does the same thing, she might be perceived as mean or, or out of line just or because. Nasty. Or nasty, exactly. Right. Nasty is a hot word right now. Mm -hmm. so. It's already trending. <laughs> um, exactly. So I, I think we just need to make sure as women we're checking our own biases when we see our um, fellow female candidates um, speaking and speaking out and speaking against injustices and just ensure that we are building each other up and not tearing each other down um, when we are doing these things, especially because they might be speaking about something that um, their male counterparts might be perceived as, as brave for bringing up um, as opposed to um, you know, their female um, colleagues. So I think fear is a really big issue. Um, as a white woman, I can say that there's so many white women who voted in a way that I think is counterintuitive to being a woman, regardless of your skin color. And yet they did, and I, I think part of it is because they were fear of losing what little they had or losing what majority or perceived power that they had in society. And so I think as women, we have to just give that up. Yes. Like regardless of how we look, regardless of where we're from, we are going to be treated as less than men until we start treating each other yeah. with more respect. It's so true. In studying and preparing for this episode, I learned you know, that there were actually women who opposed women's suffrage mm -hmm. 100 years ago. Um, you know, literally opposing ourselves wow. and, and getting us out of that, um, regardless of who you vote for, but, but giving people, you know, a fair chance and not tearing each other down for reasons that you would never even consider tearing a man, a man down, you know, mm -hmm. how his household is run, right. what his purse, well, he doesn't have a purse, but what his shoes right. look like, for example, yeah. you know, just the different things that we pick apart, um, the, the ultra critical yeah. lens with which we view people and candidates. Um, Kamala is not the only person, only female running in, in November. Um, there's going to be plenty. There's many, many seats are up for grabs. And um, I think it's just so important that we um, give all candidates, you know, the benefit of the doubt and hold them accountable, you know, to, to different aspects of their platforms. There was a great um, statistic that I read about the number one reason why women don't run for office. And I was shocked to hear that it was because no one asked them. Wow. And I, I found that was, that's so powerful. And I, I often pose this question to women because um, it seems like it would be some greater barrier, right? For, because given the gender gap that we currently have and how few women are in elected office, especially at a national level, um, what, is, what does that mean to you when I say that, that um, nobody asks them? What is, why do you think that there's that lack of confidence? What are those barriers that you see in there? The permissioning. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just really not having the access and opportunities in, you know, years ago. And even now still, I mean, legally on paper we might, but there's still a lot of stigma that um, 
that's still there and that lies there when um, women do want to to run for office or when they do want to do something that's quote unquote a, a man's job mm. or a man's title asking for to get paid the same amount i mean i think in all on all areas there's still just that stigma of not having that access and opportunity and so i think that's why those barriers still exist however it's also a great thing that we have kamala harris for instance that um, could potentially be the vice president of the United States. And also um, the way that the House flipped over in, a couple of years ago to being um, overwhelmingly a lot of women as well. You're going to start to see with a lot of young little girls that they see that representation, yes. that they can aspire to to be a um, AOC or be a Kamala Harris mm. um, you know, so I think that's what's really important right now is having that representation. And I think slowly those barriers will start to dismantle because those little girls will see that they can they can attain those high levels of office as well. I so often see women just waiting. They wait their turn in line. They wait for permission before they speak in meetings. They, even just now, Logan and I were looking at each other like, who's gonna go first? It's just so ingrained in women to take a step, take a pause, and then do something. And I, I honestly think it comes back to stereotypical gender roles. And like, if you see someone that you haven't seen in so long, their first question is, well, are you still single? When are you having children? And that shouldn't be the first question for any woman. Right. Um, men are never asked that. <laughs> I've yet to see a man ask that. When are you having a baby? <laughs> when, when I do, I'll be very impressed. <laughs> be like, that is gender equality. There you right. go. Um, so I, I think once we start changing the narrative in society and how we talk to each other, even at the very basis greeting of how are you, and that's the end, you don't say who are you seeing, then it will, it'll make changes and women will stop feeling they need permission to do things. Don't wait to vote. Don't wait to check bias when you hear it. Don't wait to make your voice heard. Don't wait to volunteer. Don't wait to stand up. One of my favorite quotes is um, by activist, writer, poet, Audre Lorde. And she said, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. But after 100 years of women's suffrage, we owe it to our fellow women um, to just give everyone a fair chance to make your voice heard, to support each other in voting, to not tear each other down, uh, because that's what this true celebration, a hundred year anniversary, is really all about. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Finding Common Ground, and we hope you'll join us next time.